Thank you, worship team, for the great music focusing us toward the cross of Christ. Today, I invite you to journey with me to the end. Because the middle is going to be rough. That's all I'm saying. And with, with that, I just want to pray, God, that my words are lost and yours are spoken. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Today we are continuing our month-long look at the topic of love, kind of from the the concept of love debunked, um, figuring that out. And as I've been pondering on that concept for about a year and a half, I would say, is when I kind of first had this little thought, and some of what's gone on in this series has maybe been my fault. Um, And so, as I've thought about that, and I've had time to just mull it over, and then, of course, the day comes when I get to talk about it, and I need to figure out how to put it all into a nice package. But today we're going to be looking at idolatry of love. When love becomes a false god. Jim was a, a young engineer. A young engineer in, the, in a big company in Tennessee that was presented an opportunity. His company asked him if he'd be willing to take a two-year assignment over to Ireland to work on a project there. And while he was there, you know, all of his expenses would be paid and he would get a pay increase. And Jim and his fiance said, you know, maybe we can do that because in a couple years we'll have enough money to put a, hand, uh, put a down payment on a house. I think I'm going to say a hound payment on a douse is what I was going to say. Um, but let me get my letters right. A down payment on a house. And so Jim heads over to Ireland. This was in a time, though, before cell phones, um, before FaceTime, when you could call internationally for nothing. I just, when I was in Israel a couple years, I couldn't believe I was video chatting my family from Israel for nothing. I mean, awesome. So in a time before that, in a time even before the internet and computers and email really was going on, in a time when even international calling was rough and still the best form of communication was the letter. And so correspondence began between Jim and his fiance, And it wasn't long before his fiance began to have just that twinge of like, oh my goodness, do I really trust Jim? So she writes over there, Jim, are you saying no to all the beautiful Irish women over there? Um, and he writes back and says, yes, of course, I'm faithful. There are beautiful women over here. But no, I am faithful. So in the next letter back, the next package, it, it's, it's a different box that comes this time. It's got a little substance to it. It's not just a letter. And he opens it up and he finds this harmonica. 
Um, and so he looks at their harmonica and reads a letter, and in it his fiance has said, Jim, I have given you this harmonica. This harmonica is for you to practice, play, and learn on the evenings you're alone, on the times when you feel like you might be tempted. Just practice and play this harmonica. That'll be one thing I can do to help keep your mind focused and faithful. And so the two years passed, and Jim comes home back to Tennessee. The plane lands, and he is so excited. He's running up to his fiance. He sees her standing there with her family. Everybody's there to welcome him back, and he's running up, you know, kind of that slow motion run with the hug coming together where, you know, there's just going to be this big embrace. And as he gets close to his fiance, he gets a big right to the chest. His fiance looks at Jim. He's like, in the best southern accent that I won't try to imitate too well. Now, before you get to all this hugging and kissing, let me hear you play that harmonica. We want evidence. We want demonstration. Jim had to demonstrate that he had followed through on his promise to learn to play the harmonica instead of being out, hanging out with people he shouldn't. And so she wanted the demonstration. And so Jim had better have been able to pull that harmonica out of his suitcase and play her the sweetest love song you ever heard on a harmonica. And so we want evidence. We want to know what is it that is proving our love. For those of you who are near my age, and I'll just let you assume. Just assume I'm... Yeah, 20. But those of you who may be near my age, um, when I was in high school, the best love evidence song there was was More Than Words. Yes, there are some people who are my age up in the front. And I'm not here to say it's a great love song that speaks of the virtues of that we would uphold all the time. I'm sure it's not there, but I can remember using it as an example to my girlfriend or ex-girlfriend or whatever she was at the time, I don't know, it doesn't matter, of saying, this is what I mean, listen to this. You know, it's, it's more than words, show me you, you love me or something, be nice to me, smile, I don't know. You know, whatever it might have been. We want evidence. We want evidence. The world wants evidence. The world wants evidence. And in the Bible, in John, the Gospel of John, there's this great, in the great discourse of Jesus after the Last Supper. And this is one of the things that has even taken me, it's just been in the last couple years maybe that I completely grasp what's going on because you get used to reading Matthew where you've got to go to chapter 25, 26 before you ever get to anything that deals with the last week. And John, you're already there by chapter 12 having the Last Supper. And after that, there's this big discourse of John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, where Jesus is out talking with his disciples, giving them his last words, praying with them, and then saying this beautiful prayer. And in the middle of that, Jesus says to his disciples, by this, all will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Love for who? Love for one another. 
Love for one another, evidence. The church, the world, will know who the disciples are when they have love for one another. The verse that was just on the screen from Exodus, chapter 20, verse 3, the start of the, the ten words, the start of the ten commandments as we, we know them, doesn't start in verse 3. I'll just a little squirrel trail right quick. The Ten Commandments don't start with verse 3. Um, what is the first commandment? I heard, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I politely and respectfully say no. The first commandment is that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, set you free, and brought you out of the house of bondage. Now, we can argue later if you agree with me or not. But that is the first commandment because all the other commandments, all of the words that come after that are based on that one concept. And so God, when he's giving these commandments and says, this is what I've done for you. This is what it will look like when you follow me, comes off and says, you will have no other gods but me. Often I think that we assume in in vision in minds, you know, we'll have no other gods. You know, we first go to, to... Buddha, Zeus, uh, you know, whatever, the sun god, Poseidon, the you know, god of the sea, whatever, whatever these other gods are. And it's like, yes, yes, yes. You know, Baal, back in the Bible times, you know, Baal was a god that they, you know, prayed to. And all of these gods that they had. Um, and we kind of think about those. And it could be caught in the trap of saying that commandment doesn't really apply to today because, you know, we don't have that quite as prevalent today. However... It's very applicable to today because we have so many gods that rule our life. And that is what we're here to talk about. To talk about how sometimes even good things, when God is removed, can become bad. Including the greatest, the greatest love. The greatest commandment is about love. The greatest of these, faith, hope, and love is love. The greatest, even the greatest, can become bad when God is removed. So we're going to unpack that a little bit today. And that's where, where the rubber is going to meet the road. Dennis Prager is a Jewish theologian. And I was reading a commentary that he he has written in, he put into words a, a, this concept that I was, have been mulling over. He, he says it this way, when anything is made an end in itself rather than as a means to God and goodness, it is a false God. When anything is made an end in and of itself, So insert any sort of great thing into that. Today we're inserting love into that concept as we look at how we have become idolatrous of love. But think about the different things like education. Education is a great thing. But it's been hijacked and it's become the greatest thing and... God has been removed from it, by and large. Art has been 
have God removed from it. And it's become despicable at times. Any countless thing that you can think of to stick in there, when it becomes an end in and of itself, it is a false god. So work through this with me. I'm going to try and be logical about how we talk about this. But work through this with me. One of the best verses, and not even a whole verse, this is just three words out of it. Um, John, 1 John 4, 8, God is love. That's the last three words of that statement in that verse. But that is what we base, we base our Christianity, we base our hope, our future on the fact that God is love. And that is the utmost truth that we need to grasp onto. Remembering that God is love, that is a complete, absolute truth. God is love. It does not mean that maybe the church has always been about love. I would contend, and this is just kind of my opinion on this, but I would contend that in my lifetime, I've you know, seen, been a part of this swing where you know, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you know, there was this kind of like hard Christianity that was, that was around, and we've kind of swung to this kind of love-infused Christianity, and it is great, and it is all good, but sometimes I think have we gone just to the same extreme, just the opposite end, and have we lost something about what it means to say God is love? Because here is where I think the switch has happened. As love has been hijacked by our culture, I think that we also believe the statement is true, love is God. That is not a true statement. The order matters. The order matters. And so when we place love as being the representation of God, we have taken God out and put God second. The Bible tells us love comes from God. Love will lead us back to God, but love is not God. God is God. So I thought of many ways to try and illustrate this that might get your attention um, or might put you to sleep, I don't know, or might make you grumble if you're a student. Uh, a couple days ago, I sat in on a math class at Pine Hills. Something I like to do now as an adult. Something I hated to do as a student. <clears throat> but I sat in on a math class and was quite impressed. And he may not have known it, but Braden Standish and I were in a race to get the answer first. Uh, Braden, if you're here somewhere, I don't know. But you may not have realized we were racing, but we were racing. Um, because everything's a race. And I was pretty impressed because I was having a hard time keeping up. Um, with what he was going on. But anyway, so go with me in this math thing. One plus one is two. That is true. That is always true. Now, for those of you who are way smarter than I, we could get into some theoretical math where, you know, we talk about, I've heard it talked about one plus one is not two. That's, we're not there. One plus one is two. Okay? Two is one plus one is not always true. Two is one plus one is not always true because two plus zero is also two. 
and then go ahead and stick any easy number you want to in there. Um, you know, 1,035,430, blah, 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 minus 102 less or whatever that might be, equals 2. So yesterday as I was processing this, I said, how can I really make this interesting? <clears throat> so I Googled, you know, crazy math equations that equal 2. I came up with quite a few. This one I just thought I would show you. We will understand none of it. Um, it's a screenshot, so it's incredibly grainy, so I apologize for that. But if it were perfectly clear, you wouldn't understand it any better, so I don't think it matters. All right, so up there, just in case you can't read it, pi squared divided by the sum of 1 to infinity uh, times 1 minus n to the second power minus 4 equals 2. Okay? I've got $1 if somebody can prove that to me by the end of church. I'm sorry, by the end of... I don't want you to do it while I'm talking. So I don't know. Can do it between when I stop talking and when Sabbath school starts. Okay, $1. But anyway, that equals 2 according to the internet. Okay? That is true. 2 is that. 2 isn't just 1 plus 1. But this is kind of what we've done with love. Because we want to come in and say, you know what? I want to define 2 in a way that makes me look special. And so I'm going to come up with this equation and do it too. Another equation that I found that I actually kind of liked, um, I'll just kind of describe it to you. It was a bunch of stuff you wouldn't understand. Uh, like it, it was a statistics problem that essentially said, if you take all the numbers from 1 to infinity and do this, which is basically saying if you take the random event of like one thing happening um, where there's only two options and do it a billion times, it's going to fall under a standard deviation. And we know statistics, statisticians, while they love numbers, don't like to deal with a lot of numbers because they live in the realm of one. Zero to one is what statisticians live in. Percentage. To make them sound smarter, they start to refer to it as percentage. So they deal with one to a hundred. You know, that's where, where statisticians live. Between zero and one is their values. Okay? So statisticians live there. And so this big equation that looked very similar to this had all these crazy numbers and whatnot in it. At the front of it, because, remember, statisticians live in the realm of one. At the front of it was just a simple two. So it was two times all of the craziness that equals one. Therefore, all that craziness times two is one. It's two times one. Anyway, I digress. I can tell I've lost you. Okay? This was important for me yesterday as I looked. If you're looking to do something tomorrow to make yourself look smart or feel dumb, however you want to interpret it, go Google some cr crazy numbers that equal two. When we begin to say, I want to define love by my crazy interpretation of whatever that might be, we start to remove God from his rightful place. So this false God, the, the false God of love that we have created in our culture that has come up is because we have switched the order. Because the order has been switched. It's been hijacked and love is now God. And that is not true. God is love. Prager again says, sums it up nice. He says, therefore, in order for a thing or an idea to be truly a false god, people must not only make it an end to itself, they must believe it is a worthy and noble thing to live for. The Bible is clear. 
There is nothing more noble, nothing more worthy than love. It's throughout Scripture. It is just, it's everywhere in Scripture. This concept of we need to love, it is the greatest commandment given in the Old Testament by Moses in Deuteronomy, repeated by Jesus to his disciples and the crowds following him. Love your neighbor and love God. It is, this is the greatest commandment. The rich young ruler, what's the greatest commandment? Love your neighbor, love God, sell all you have. This is, this is what it is. It is all about love. But when we remove, make it as an end in and of itself and know that love is a worthy thing, that's when it can become a false god. When God is removed, even the greatest things go bad. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. Even when, I'm sorry, when God is removed, anything can go bad. Even love. So, I want to look at another way. I think this equation has been swapped. And don't worry, I'm done trying to explain math. God's moral code is a law of love. But love, in and of itself, is not a moral code. When we define our morality based on our broken concepts of what love might be, and use that as our moral code, it is separated from what God's code is. God's code, God's moral code, best explained in the Ten Commandments, is a law of love. Do not question that. That is an absolute truth. God's law, moral standards, is based on a law of love. But love is not a moral code in and of itself. When we separate God from that, when we just say, I'm going to look at love and make that be my God, we have pulled it out of its context. I see this happening most in the phrase that I see and hear around a lot. Love is love. That gets thrown around a lot today. Love is love. You can't question my love because it's defined by me. When we remove God from love, it will, it's like taking the rudder off of a ship. The fins off a rocket long stick out of a bottle rocket and letting that go. It's going to go everywhere and anywhere. Because without God, love is not a moral code in and of itself. I want to kind of look at that a little bit. So, love of religion. 
Religion is a great thing. We are called to love following God. Being a disciple is about being religious. But when I say that, I know some of you just quinge inside because being religious has been turned into a very bad concept. It is the zealots. It is the crazy people, the people who have no love for others that love religion. And love of religion, if God is removed, will lead to things like, I don't know, the dark ages. Will lead to people using religion as a means to bash you down. That's in our culture. It used to be to chop your head off. Which I guess is still in our world today, just not in this culture. When God is removed, love of religion goes bad. And therefore, love of religion can't be used as a moral code because it needs God. Love of country. There are times when love of country is a great thing. But there are times when love of country has led us to do horrific and horrible things. Love of country. If it puts puts you above somebody else, if it is tearing others down, love of country is a bad thing. Love of race. It is great to love your heritage. But man, the second you start putting love of race into saying love is love and therefore I'm going to love my race, you have gone down a dark path. Love of pleasure. Pleasure is a great thing. God has brought pleasure to us to enjoy. We've been told to live life and live it abundantly. There is pleasure in that. God has given us these great things. I always thought that early on that the apple on the tree that tempted Adam and Eve must have been a Granny Smith apple because that's the only one worth dying for. Um, I've I've changed my mind now. Now I'm a big pink lady fan or pink something. Or boo, pink lady. That is what it is. But anyway, but love of pleasure. If you think that God doesn't, that we're not meant to love pleasure, read Song of Solomon's. Okay. We are called to love pleasure, but the second you remove God out of that. Love of pleasure becomes an awful, despicable thing. Love of self. Self-respect is an amazing and important aspect of our lives. But when we love self more than others, that is not a moral code to live by. I thought a great way to uh, explain this one a little bit um, was to talk about my favorite country music artist, Brad Paisley. Um, telling you, that guy is an insane guitarist. And I don't know who writes his songs, but he has the best songwriters in there. Now, not all of his songs are good, but even the ones that aren't very good just make me laugh a little or appreciate the 
twist of whatever normal phrase they're using to do whatever. But he's got one song that when I heard it, I said, man, that is a good theme song for me. It starts out this way. It goes, well, I love her, but I love to fish. Come on now. If my wife were here today, she would be saying, yes, preach it. It goes on to say, I spend all day on this lake. She only complains. She told me today that if I went to the fishing hole, she'd be on her way, pack all her things, and be gone by noon. love of self because the next line is well I'm going to miss her (laughs) great song and actually a great memory Anna and I did that song for a talent show once I got dressed up in all my fishing stuff and she played along it was early in our marriage she didn't know any better Um, um, but anyway that is love of self over others What'd you say? <laughs> I just have to ask because when I thought that's what I thought she said. What are you trying to say? Foreshadowing. That's foreshadowing nothing. I have learned to control my fishing and keep it under under control, mostly. Uh, anyway, but anyway, you know, big, huge things. Sometimes even simple things like love of chocolate. I mean, man, no better thing. Dark chocolate. Yes, peanut butter. No. Or even dark chocolate covered almonds. Yes, I'll give that one to you. And Man, that is good stuff. But if that's all I do, which I have done that sometimes, you end up not feeling right. When God is removed, even the greatest things go bad. The problem with our with our culture and its views of love, and maybe even, God forbid, somewhere in the church, but looking and saying that love is love. Looking on and saying that love is God. God, the only way to God is love. You know, yes, a way to God is love. God, we, we will do that. But if it's the only or the most important or it comes before God, there's problems. And here's where the problem is. When we look to our culture, when we look to each other for these definitions, we have a problem because we are sinful. Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is the most deceitful. Someone say, help me, Jesus. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? If I am looking to me to define love, 
I'm going to be led down a dark, dark path. If I'm not working to mold myself by God's definitions, I will go down a dark, dark path. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is a problem. If we look to ourselves, if we look to others, to a human concept to define who God is, our hearts are wicked. We can't even tell how wicked they are. And we're nowhere close to righteous, not even one of us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory. This is a problem. Is it clear? The problem, there's a problem inside of us. And this is where Christianity differs from other religions. Because if you are looking for service, if you are looking for treatment of others, if you are looking for good stewardship, both both in your home and to the earth, if you are looking for any, any kind of just the good, strong tenets of what it means to follow, be a follower of Christ, you can find that Pretty much anywhere. Almost all world religions have an idea of doing good works, of treating others nice. Remember when Jesus gave the greatest commandment, well, when Moses came there, I don't think that that commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, that wasn't necessarily a brand new concept per se. It was a new application of that concept. We can find things that look great outside of Christianity. But the one tenet that they don't have is none of those religions teach that the human is broken. That the human is deceitful above all things. This is a problem because when we insert that into any of that, the works that other religions are trying to do, the suitcase that they're trying to fill to show up to God and say, here's my work. Do I have enough to get in? Or did I come up short? Do I have enough? The Bible tells us, Scripture tells us, Jesus tells us that we are broken and no amount of anything will ever fill up the chasm that has been caused by sin. So we can't look to that. We can't remove it from God. We have to understand that love has to remain coming from God. God is love. And all love flows from him. And when that does, we will love others. And all of those things will happen. But it happens in a place of absolute and utter brokenness. But here is the solution. Because God didn't just come and say, yo, here's your problems, bro. Let me lay it out for you. God didn't just stop there. All of those verses 
that are on the screen right now are not the end of the discussion. They are a statement of fact about reality. But then God steps in. And God's love says, I will come in and deal with that. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I love that song this morning. About Christ becoming sin for us. Think about that. True love is about sacrifice. It is about saying, I will never have any pleasure, any joy. I will give that all up if that's what love demands. It demands my all. But while we were still sinners, broken, black, bruised and disgusting, God died for us. Another statement of fact that brings hope. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul in Romans there is writing, it's part of that great passage, for I am convinced that neither height nor depth nor, nor angels nor demons, principalities, anything in all the world can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from God's love. That is a fact. Nothing outside of our decision to say thanks but no thanks to God can separate us from that love. God's love is amazing. And we must look at that and let his definition of love shape how we view love. Zephaniah 3.17, an amazing verse. God rejoices over you and quiets you with his love calms you down, brings peace into your life. This is the love we're talking about. It is a love that is going to fill us so that we then aren't trying to fill ourselves with love of pursuits, with love of self. I will give you a new heart. Remember, we talked about the reality of the heart. It is deceitfully wicked. Who can even begin to understand that? God can. He says, I will give you a new heart. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender and responsive heart. This is the love of God that comes in gives all. Love demands my all. When love supplies my all, there can be a problem. If I'm trying to supply myself through love, there's a problem. But when I'm giving my all through love, 
And the only reason that can happen is because Jesus came down, took on our sin, took on our shame, took our punishment. And in the greatest demonstration of love, died for our sin, died in our place. This is amazing love. This is the love that we need to pursue. So church, so friends, I appeal you today, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, be imitators of God's love. Imitate God's love. Learn from him and understand that his love was demonstrated in that sacrificial moment when he gave up his life so that we could live the life we were meant to live. So we could have hope and we didn't have to face death with fear. Be imitators of God's love. God, this morning we come to you. We acknowledge our complete, utter, absolute brokenness. But more than that, Lord, we acknowledge the, perf- the perfect, the unfathomable, the un- understandable, the depth, the width of your love for us. And Lord Jesus, may we, this week, may we today be reflectors Reflectors of God's love. Lord, may we never remove you from the equation. And if we have God, convict us. Convict us that we need to put you back into the equation. That we need to understand that it all is pointing to you and comes from you. And there was not love before you. God, Man, help us today to let that love change us. To respond to your call. To let you cover us, our filthy, deceitful selves, with the pure, righteous robe of Jesus Christ. And may we be a church, a people, that demonstrates to the world that we are your disciples because we love one another. We ask these things in the saving name of Jesus. Amen.